0: Well, uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. Welcome, Welcome. to this uh, very special episode of Divergent Opinions. This is the one where you lose your virginity? I thought it was the one where you died. Oh, it could be that, too.
1: My arm does hurt.
0: I almost died this morning. You, d- you did. I mean, statistically, this morning you were more likely to die than most mornings. That's true. How's that for a mind expander? Um, I don't know. Not very good, actually. Sort of like um,
1: this uh, podcast.
0: Yeah, sure. What do you want to talk about?
1: I don't know. Play Armour. Um, let's talk about our new app that re- was released today. Today. Today, through the magic of podcast deployment, it was definitely released today.
0: Or at some this, point in the past. This day of January. It, it was released today, and/or is available today, depending on when you're listening. Yes, but we can't tell you which day that is. It's this day, but Apple could tell you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So let's let's talk about our new app, Phosphor.
0: Phosphor. Tell me, what is phosphor?
1: Phosphor. Mm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and now you see problem one. Yeah. So
1: phosphor. Um is I don't think we ever talked about it on the podcast, did we? I don't
0: think we, 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 we shied away to, from it. Yeah.
1: So Phosphor is an app for turning your QuickTime movie content, the little animated logo you made, or the um, little before and after color correct thing you whipped up for your website, and turning that into a uh, HTML5 asset that you can just dump on your website you include a little bit of javascript and it plays back um so it's kind of like an animated gif but it's a little different it's kind of like a quick time movie but it's a little different it's a new way of doing short video snippets or animation um, on the web
0: and so the key differentiators of Phosphor compositions, in my opinion, you can disagree, are that uh, these compositions are – it's pure JavaScript and Canvas tag and images. We'll talk, dig into this a bit more in a bit. Um, so the browser doesn't need any special codec support. You don't have to worry about all the different licensing stuff. Um, the browser doesn't need a plug like you do with Flash. Mm-hmm. It works uh, the same on desktop and on mobile. Um, mm-hmm. And it works the same on smartphones versus tablets. It always plays right in the in the browser in the page in C two. Um, you don't bounce out to a separate player like you do um, on the iPhone on iPhones with Video Tag. Um, and because uh, it's the the animations and videos become a first class citizen on the page, uh, they can be. Used as real design elements, so you can have transparency. Um, you can do anything. You can do a canvas tag in terms of how you display them on the page. You're not sort of getting a, sort of a tunnel through to a video player like you do with a lot of other types of uh, playback.
1: Right, um, and they're really scriptable. We added some fun things to do, you know, whatever sort of extra stuff you need to do on top um, in JavaScript. And uh, unlike the whole video tag morass, this is a single codec that plays back everywhere. So you encode your file once, and you're done.
0: So um, let's dive back. Uh, Where did Phosphor come from?
1: Uh, It was your... You pointed me to a article on the web. Why don't you explain what it was?
0: Yeah, so um, when the iMac, the new sort of super thin... Except no, no, no. It's the iPhone 5. Well, both of them had it. I thought it was the iMac first. No, the iPhone 5 came first. Weren't they at the same show? Maybe. We saw it on the iPhone 5 first. I think I saw it on the iMac first. Forget, forget it. it. I quit. I'm not going to ship the app. Um, anyways, um... Apple started using some interesting little animations um, as part of their design, uh, as part of the pages for these new products. On the iMac, it was a sort of fade-in of the historic iMac line going back to the Bondi Blue. And on the iPhone, it was um, spinning headphones that you could actually scrub back and forth. And uh, a little uh, unlock screen. Oh, yeah. Also uh, the unlock screen. Um, And someone uh, wrote a blog post. I'll throw the link in the show notes because I don't have it in front of me here. Uh, sort of looking at how they were doing this because when when you look at it on your desktop, you might not think anything special is going on because we're used to seeing animated content in our browsers, whether it's via Flash or HTML5 or maybe just, um, you know, in, in some cases, CSS3 and JavaScript. Um, but if you look at it on an iPhone, you would notice, well, these these animations are playing right within my browser. That's, that's strange. Um, and I would not have noticed that. And you also, you know, especially when you're looking at things like the unlock screen, um, well, that's not really the sort of thing you would do via CSS3. Um, and so someone someone dug in and said, well, how is Apple doing this? That that these things are playing without any user interaction, and they're just being design elements, and, and figured out that Apple was doing um, an, an interesting sort of a, a hack to be able to display motion content just using JavaScript and images and the canvas tag. Um, and I think we both thought that it was kind of interesting and had put it aside and then both sort of revisited the idea as maybe something that could be a little bit, have some broad appeal.
1: Yeah, originally the plan was we were going to talk about it in a podcast and we were sort of going over what we were going to discuss for the week and you sent me the link to this, like, tear part that someone had done. And I think we might have been—I don't remember which one of us said it first—but we, you know, one of us said, "Well, it'd be kind of neat if there was an app that would make these." Um, And so we tabled it for a couple days. And it was, you know, by the end of that week that I had something built that was, you know, sort of a proof of concept for an app that would take a QuickTime movie and convert it into, you know a similar sort of, um, composition. And so, yeah, so once we had sort of proof of concept, um, we started comparing it to the compression levels and such that Apple was getting in. We were already beating them. And so, you know, it seemed like a good idea.
0: Um, And so um, should we dive in a little bit on how this technology actually works, you think?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, the simplest way to think of it is that um, you could imagine taking a QuickTime movie and writing out an individual frame for each frame in the movie and then writing a little JavaScript program that took each one of those frames and drew them one after another to a canvas with the right amount of time between each one. So wait, draw a frame, wait, draw a frame, wait, draw a frame. And that's really all that we're doing. Um, The only thing we do beyond that is we actually look through, we compare each frame to the ones around it, And remove redundant content because the canvas, the way that the canvas works is when you draw something, you're always drawing over whatever is already in the canvas. So the canvas doesn't blank itself in any way like a, you know, like a quick time. You can think of a quick time movie as always. Every frame is new. Um, Whereas in the canvas, all you're ever doing is just drawing more stuff on top of what's there. And so if you ever want to start over, you draw blank, you know, the color blank, and then start drawing again. And so what we do is we take advantage of that and draw the first frame and then everything that changed in the next frame and then everything that changed in the next frame after that. And, you know, it, it it's really that simple. Um, the hard part is figuring out, how to best optimize those changes
0: right and so i mean if you're familiar with video compression you can think of this um as sort of an interframe codec um either lossless or lossy depending on how you configure it um and sort of using similar technology to what you might find in um you know something back like uh, uh well even dv for for real um well, but DV, no, because DV was intraframe. Oh, that's true, yeah. So it's more like, uh, it's like an MPEG-1. It's 1. like Cinepac or something. Yeah, yeah. um. And so once we've sort of figured we, – we've broken the image into 8x8 eight eight blocks, uh, we go through, we throw out all the ones that are duplicates of blocks we've already stored, and then we actually store those blocks inside of new image files. And so that's one of the assets from Phosphor are a set of JPEGs or PNGs or TIFFs um, that when you open them look like a whole bunch of little 8x8 eight eight cubes. Um, and so those files actually can be compressed again, using typical image compression um, to get, you know, spatial savings there. Um, And so that's
1: essentially intra-frame compression. That's what you would get with DV. Right. I mean, the JPEG codec and the DV codec aren't that much different. And
0: And you get the temporal savings from the phosphor analysis. Right. Um, And you can control, to some extent, through the advanced settings, how aggressive we are in looking for duplicates and how lossy the codec is. Right. Um, but the, the end result is that you get out these JPEGs that sort of look like, um, a patchwork of eight by eight squares, and then you get some JSON, which is, um, a JavaScript object, um, sort of in a text file that tells, um, your browser how to display those in in, in, in what order and at what time. And then you get the, the Phosphor framework, which is the JavaScript that actually ties all this together inside your browser.
1: Right, and so, yeah, so we've basically made an encoder and a decoder. The encoder is what we call Phosphor. That's the app that we're putting in the Mac App Store. And all that does is takes a QuickTime file and spits out all those things Colin just said, the images, the JSON, and, you know, it's nice enough to spit out a copy of the framework, but it wouldn't need to. Um, And then the other side of the puzzle is the decoder or the player and that is just a JavaScript framework that we wrote um, that we've put up on GitHub. so it's that's that site is completely open source. Um, people can go in and change whatever they want to um, and so and that will just take those you pointed at all those assets. you say here's an, you know here's a spot on my web page that I want you to turn into a canvas and start playing in." And here is the JSON file, and here are all those images that the JSON file needs and just have at it. And the framework goes in, puts in a canvas into your DOM, does all the drawing, handles, you know, standard callbacks about what frame you're on, lets you play, lets you loop, all of that good stuff.
0: Um, And one of the things I'm excited about, and and you can enable this mode in Phosphor, is that we have interactivity as well. So um, by throwing a few extra bits into that JSON file, we can actually scrub both directions and seek to any given frame um, really quickly. And so we can do things, and we've got demos of this, like... um, 3d spinning objects that you can scrub back and forth and sort of have that, that interactive experience or, um, through scripting, you could do all sorts of interesting things by uh, displaying different frames at different times or playing in different directions.
1: Right. Yeah. I'm looking forward to see what people do
0: with this. Yeah. I think it's definitely one of those things that it feels like something that people will do cool things with, but neither of us is a full-time web designer. Um, and so can't necessarily even envision that at this point. Right. And, you know, we've really built, we've tried to build in a lot of flexibility
1: so people can play around. I mean, one of the things that, you know, that we found, we discovered early on. So the first what you know, the, the ones that we saw on the Apple site are all JPEG, Atlas images. Atlases is what we're calling the, pile of macro blocks that we pull from to draw into the canvas. Um, but what we found pretty early on is with a little bit extra work on our part, we can add alpha channels using the PNGs. So we write out PNG files instead, and all of a sudden you can have an animation running on your page with full PNG style transparency, like in a full alpha channel. Right, which is not possible with
0: any other technology?
1: Any really? other technology, right? Um, Short of you know a PNG sequence or the elusive animated PNG format that has never been adopted, right? So yeah, so that get then it starts getting really interesting because you can layer these because they're you know they're standard DOM objects. You can put multiple ones on top of each other. You can put them into CSS transforms. You can you know do 3D CSS moves. Um, the sky's really the limit here and so and because the player is open source you know one of the things i that seems like an obvious use for this is you can you know pretty easily hijack this to draw into your own existing canvas so one of the things i'm really interested to see someone do is you know sprite based animation where you've got your little game running, but all of your characters are, you know, just running these preset loops of, you know, Phosphor animation.
0: Right. And so the the workflow for this, or for something like that, um, you know, Phosphor 1.0 is working Strictly with QuickTime files in a, a variety of formats, um, ProRes and H.264, sort of the modern formats that Apple's on board with. Um, so, if you, for example, created all those sprite animations in Flash, uh, which a lot of people might, um, or in Photoshop, After or Effects would be great for that. Right. You can spit out um, a QuickTime movie, a ProRes 4444. 4, 4, 4. That was enough fours. Uh, there can never be enough fours. Four to the fourth. No. Um, Anyways, you can spit out one of those movies, bring it into Phosphor. Um, Even if you don't necessarily want to play back at that same frame rate, you can use the QuickTime basically as the transport. And then um, using the Phosphor framework, you can control playback speeds or seek to individual frames to do your custom animation. Um, So there's, there's a lot of flexibility there. And we'll look at adding other ways of getting content into Phosphor in future releases. Right. Yeah, I mean, do we want to go over this is our first
1: I mean, sound, I mean, I'll, we obviously have a lot of listeners who do video stuff and this, you know, talking about the app itself is going to be interesting for them. But I think we get a fair amount of developers too. Yeah. Do we want this is our first modern app. Do we want to talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I think that's I mean, let's let's start out by talking through what we mean by a modern app.
1: Yeah, so we wrote ScopeBox started writing ScopeBox 7 years ago now. Jeez. Um you know, back when the only machines were PowerPC. Um and we still support PowerPC and we still can't compile ScopeBox in a version of Xcode that was you know, written in the last two years, um, clip wrap we've gone and dropped a lot of compatibility um, that is a little bit more modern, but it's still you know a, we there are parts of that code that were written you know while I lived in new york
0: well and and I think m- most significantly quickTime. Uh, outputs to a variety of codecs that are only accessible in old QuickTime, so in in the the classic QuickTime API. um, Right. Yeah, I mean, a lot has changed since those days. Um, And none of
1: it is hard and fast yet, but there are a lot of things that you can't opt into until you give up on certain legacy choices. And so... Um since those two apps were written, QuickTime has been deprecated. The QuickTime API. It has been replaced with QTkit, which was their fancy new playback framework, which is now, I believe, also deprecated. <laughs>
0: uh, I think it's in that sort of pre-deprecated state, but yeah.
1: It's it's being ignored. Yeah. Um and replaced again with something called AV Foundation, which is the platform that all media playback on iOS is and all media playback going forward on OS X should be, as long as you can sort of live within their requirements. Um, And there are lots of reasons why those two apps can't yet. Um, But we sort of made the decision with Phosphor that we were going to try our damnedest to live within those limitations and just see how, you know, it's,
0: I mean, it's not often that you get the chance to start with a file new project in Xcode. Um, Yeah. And you know, every year we go to WWDC and every year we see all of the amazing new things that you can do in this magical world in which we all get to start new projects that only support the latest version of OS X.
1: Right, exactly. And so this was our one chance where we said, you know what, let's do that. So we said, you know, there's going to be a Mac App Store only project. It's only going to be 108 and up. Um, it's going to only support, you know, codecs that AV Foundation supports. So we can only import ProRes, um, H.264, JPEG, and MPEG. Um so you know you can 't bring in your animation codec you can't bring in your source and squeeze files you can't bring in um, apple intermediate you know. apple intermediate things like that um, but in exchange, we got to play with AV Foundation, which I was actually really impressed with um, you know so there have been you know we have sunk a ton of development time and effort into becoming competent with QuickTime. Um, The old QuickTime, the QuickTime C API. And, you know, it's not an easy framework. Um, There are not a ton of people who are, you know, fluent in it. And, you know, we've done a lot of fairly large projects in it, and so um, I you know I was it was interesting to me to see that a B foundation isn't much different um, you know when you go and you look to see what you can do in the QuickTime C stuff there's lots of stuff that everyone says is impossible that we do in scopebox um, or in cliprap just because you know, there's the layer that everyone skates along on the top. And then if there's not sample code from Apple, most people assume it's impossible. And so over the, you know, we've been sort of watching AB Foundation come up for a couple of years now. And I sort of believed everyone for some reason this time around when they said, oh, that's not possible and that's not possible. So, you know, we we started working in this. And one of the things we quickly found out that's impossible is playing back a movie with transparency in it you can play it back but it's going to automatically pre-comp it you know black and that's just that's what you do um there's no way around that and you know after a day of mucking around we have a player that'll play back with an alpha channel and so i was pleasantly surprised to find out that like no it's just still hard to do this stuff it's not it's not impossible any more than it was before
0: a- AV Foundation is, I think, if, if if you were, if you're one of these people who jumped on the Qt Kit bandwagon at all, I think AV Foundation is very intimidating because it's, it's definitely
1: lower level than, than Qt yeah. kit. Yes, and
0: it's a very well, it's a very verbose verbose sort of um, API, and there's lots of different parts that you, you can sort of think as different Lego bricks that you connect together, and it it definitely has a learning curve in terms of wrapping your head around. Um, all these different layers and these different types of objects you encounter, and um, you know, it, it's nowhere near as easy as QtKit if you just want to play back video in your, you know, uh, it's still
1: pretty easy for that, but it's no, it's nowhere near as
0: limiting for sure. Yeah, exactly. You don't hit those those walls, um, and and that's good because you don't have the same options for falling back to the old QuickTime API like you did with QtKit. Right. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, there are still, there are new limitations with AV Foundation, um, which are still deal breakers for us, for our other apps. Um, but they tend to be things like codec support. Um, and there's not much else we couldn't do now.
0: And it's, I mean, you know, AV Foundation has made dramatic uh, progress from ten seven to ten eight. It wasn't really around as a public framework in ten six, um, although it was it was sh- shipping. And um, you know, hopefully, we'll see ten nine this year, and it'll make another big leap. Um, yeah. Obviously, the fact that it's shared with iOS, um, I think, has has pros and cons. It's you know, it means that it gets iterated on much more, and that we can sort of count on it to not go away but it means that the feature set um, to some extent is sort of contextualized within the uh, scope of what you do on iOS devices. Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, so let's talk about other stuff um, because as we said, this is a fully modern app. Um, This is our first 64-bit app. It's Mm -hmm. our first ARC app, um, automatic reference counting app. Um, What other firsts? It's got auto layout. Uh, mm-hmm. um, In a few places. Yeah. <laughs> um, first one
1: using core animation. Yeah. First app using um, those are the big ones, right?
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, well, I guess it's you know the first app we're doing that uses blocks extensively. Right. Yeah. Um, which I think we both are fully on board with as a pretty awesome uh, enhancement. I do like blocks. Yes. Um, what do you? What's your experience been like with Arc? Any downsides you see there?
1: Um. Well. Okay. So let's start by explaining what Arc is. Um, Arc is an acronym for Automatic Reference Counting, and this is okay. something which was added within the past year.
0: Yeah. I, two uh, years. Yeah, that it was this
1: last WWDC, right? Or was it the one before? I think it
0: was the WWDC in twenty eleven. Hmm. That was first shown off.
1: And what ARC does is, it takes. Um, so before we had ARC, there are basically three ways to manage memory when you program. There is the old way that we did back in the days of C, which was when you start using something, you make it. When you're done using it, you dispose of it. And it's up to you to figure out when you're done using it. <laughs> if, so if you
0: don't do that, your application has a memory leak. It grows and grows and grows over time, and eventually, given right. The memory
1: usage grows and grows and grows, mm-hmm. and eventually, you hit whatever the limit is, either of your, you know, physical memory. With a 32-bit app, you're, you can only address for gig of memory, or with a 64-bit app, you eventually just swap everything to disk, and the whole system goes to hell. Um. So the second option is what Objective-C, the language that all of our apps are principally written in, and what that does is something called reference counting. So every object you make has this attribute to it, which is its reference count, and when you want to keep something around, you increment the reference count and when you are done using it you decrement the reference count and the underlying system says has a bunch of rules for this and it says when the reference count goes to zero everyone has said they're done with this so i will just throw it away for you Um, what it means is that you don't have to know no single part of the program has to know when something's done being used. It just knows when it's done using it. So everyone has, there's this notion of ownership. And so you take ownership of something while you're using it and you get rid of, you know, you release the ownership. And then when everyone has released their ownership, the object is deemed safe for disposal. Um, The third option is what, Languages like Java use, which is garbage collection, which just, um, you know, most people just think of it as magic. It's just in the background, the system knows when you're done with something, and when you, when it's decided you're done with something, it disappears. Um, the way that it does that is by watching pointers and figuring out when pointers can no longer be referenced. Um, but... You know, so but to the programmer, it's essentially magic. You just don't worry about it; it automatically happens. Um, but it means that the program is always running this garbage collector in the background, which actually takes time and resources and does all sorts of non-ideal things. Um, it's fine if you're running something that's not very performant, but it's not something you can do for you know, like a real-time video analysis tool or, um,
0: right. Because if you've built a tool that, uh, is eking out every last bit of performance, but then you have this thing that steps in at seemingly random times and uses some resources to clean up your memory for you, you can't predict that. And, you know, you're suddenly having this fluctuating amount of performance available to your application and Right, I mean, because the problem is the garbage collector cannot run while things are being
1: accessed. And so anytime the garbage collector wants to collect garbage, it has to halt your program, dig through all of the pointers that the system is, you know, that that application is looking at, find which ones have been, you know, completely released, you know, that no one points to that object anymore, and then it can collect it. Um, It means your program has to always be able to halt at random times for random durations.
0: And also, which for most applications, it's completely fine. Right. Um, it also has big impacts on, on the mobile side, uh, which is mobile devices need to minimize CPU use. They're CPU constrained. They're memory constrained. So right. if your app's sort of, with garbage collection, your app's sort of, are always sort of leaking memory and then cleaning up memory and leaking memory and cleaning up memory. Um right. if you the high water mark on a
1: garbage collect collected app is always higher. The high mean you know, on the high water mark of memory usage is always higher than right. a yeah. well written retain release. Reference counted app.
0: Right, and that may not seem like a big deal if you've got 16 gigs of system memory, and we're talking about a few megabytes and a complex extra cores. You know, if you're on a on an iPhone 3G with whatever 256 megs of RAM and a 400 megahertz CPU, um, that starts to matter. So garbage collection never made its way to iOS, Um, and and it never
1: really. I mean, Apple. So Apple added garbage collection to Objective C at some point. And very and if you were if you were prescient, you never tried it because it never really caught on. Um, there was enough teams within Apple who were not willing to adopt it. There was enough people outside of Apple who were not willing to adopt it, and it just never really took off. I don't think they ever got the resources they needed internally to make it rock solid. Um, And the problem is, you know, there are other problems with a garbage collected app too. If you have memory problems, they tend to, you know, if you have a a bug in your software, which causes a, which affects memory usage um, in an, an application in the other two models of memory management, it tends to crash roughly the same place every time. And where it crashes tends to have something to do with, you know, tends to be local to where the problem is in your code. Where with the garbage collector, it's completely, (laughs) everything is random. Um, You know, memory pressure is random. Memory access is random. Like there's, Everything is non-deterministic when it comes to memory if you're in garbage
0: collection. right? Just a bad idea all around. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's a bad idea, wow. but the, there are the bad ideas. implementation and, and not the right solution for where the platform is going. Right. It was, for many
1: situations, it was the best possible solution until the smart people at Apple came up with ARC which is their answer to this. And what Arc does is it basically just looks at your code and in the same way that you used to take ownership of a reference when you needed to use it and release it when you were done with it, Arc just does all of that automatically because it you know, using the tools they built for Clang and LLVM, their you know, their fancy new compiler, they're able to They know enough about the program that you've written that they, as long as you aren't trying to be really tricky, which they no longer, I mean, it's basically just a series of rules that they've written now that make it illegal to be tricky. Like you just, you have to follow their rules for how you use memory, but as long as you're willing to do that. They will write all of that code for you in the background. So you say, I need to use this variable. I'm going to use it. I'm going to add some numbers to it. I'm going to move it over here. Now I'm done with it. You don't even have to say I'm done with it. Like you just stop using it. And the minute you stop using it, they add in the release, you know, behind the scenes. So in there, so there's the copy of code that you're writing. And then there's another copy which Arc is constantly updating in the background, which is, your code with retains and releases and everything else added in. And then that's what gets compiled. So the program that runs is actually the same reference counting sort of application that you would have written, you know, know, the same sort of application that we write still for ScopeBox and ClipRap. Uh, Except that... You don't have to write the code, and the compiler writes it, and the compiler, it tends to be smarter. Yes. Or at least more diligent. Yes. Um, And so less bugs, less code. Um, It tends to be incredibly conservative about how it does it, which means there is a slight performance issue. But because everything is overly conservative, they've also added optimization passes to the compiler, which are able to strip out redundant retains and releases. They can find those now and strip them out. And so it's really just a solid win. Um,
0: It definitely, the first few weeks of working with it, you start to, you you feel dirty. You have to force yourself not to do retain and release because it feels like you're being lazy. Um, But you have to keep reminding yourself that and the compiler is doing a better job than you ever would. Um, right. I mean, what's your what's your take now? We've got an app that's that has shipped um, that uses Arc. Were there any days where you were pounding your head against Arc, saying, "What the hell is this thing doing? Why is this happening?"
1: No. I mean, we had one or two bugs we had to track down um, due to Arc. The major complaint that I have is that. At this point in time, and hopefully not, hopefully in 10.9 or something, this will be addressed. But at this point in time, they've only half implemented Arc. Um, So there's two side-by-side frameworks within OSX. There's the COCA framework, and there's the Core Foundation frameworks. And Core Foundation is not Objective-C. It's, you know, straight C but it's still retain-counted, everything. You just do CF retain, CF release. And none of that is, there's no A and ARC for that. You still have to manually retain-count all of that. And I don't see a reason why that needs to be true. Um, and unfortunately, we use a fair amount of foundation, um, core foundation, just because things like core video any any of the apple frameworks that start with core are written in core foundation so core animation is in core foundation core media core image core um core video is core video real i guess yeah yeah okay they all started sounding wrong when i said them uh core keyboard core yeah. browser yeah So, yeah, so none of those are automatic. So the problem is that eventually you sort of settle into the hot tub that is ARC, and you're like, oh, I don't have to do any work anymore. The programs just write themselves. And then you all of a sudden realize, like, wait, no, these all have C, F in the front of them. I have to do it. Right. And then it gets worse when you start mixing them because then you have to decide at what point you want Arc to take over. If you do, you need to make sure when you let Arc take over that you've left things in the proper state so you can't, like, say, oh, I'm going to retain this and then I'm going to give it to Arc and then I'm going to expect Arc to release it unless you've told Arc that you did retain it. You know, so there's... there's, uh, It does make... So for most everything, ARC just works automatically and is better, and you don't worry about it. But this, the intersection between core, foundation, and Objective-C is actually harder than it used to be. Sure. And so I would like to see that fixed. But other than that, it's been great. Um,
0: Let me just throw in, in the meantime... um, If you if you're a developer dealing with this, um, one of the great ways to deal with this sort of issue for now is things like the clang static analyzer, which will help you figure out when you're leaking core object. Yeah.
1: Well, it actually does a really poor job of that Mm. Um, because the problem is you instrument every time you move something from core foundation into core into arc, you
0: Oh, right. Yeah. I just mean in terms of actually um, not necessarily when you're bridging, but when you're just working with core with CF stuff.
1: Right. But that's, you know, that was, yeah, just, but it would do that for Objective-C non-ARC too. Yeah.
0: I'm just saying, you know, if you, when you start to fall into that habit of not releasing anything, um, the Clang static analyzer becomes a nice reminder of, Hey, I, I just, I've had this happen when working on this project a few times when, you know, you write code for a day and then you look at the static analyzer and say, Oh, I didn't release any of those things that I created today because I was thinking about arc. And yeah. uh, Yeah. So I, I suspect
1: this is a problem they will solve Yeah. because it's, it's intrinsically solvable. They've already solved it. They just have to add another file Mm -hmm. that lists all of the rules for core foundation, which are identical basically. Um, There's no reason why this can't be solved. Um, And so I suspect they will because I imagine, I mean, one, I know that unlike garbage collection, ARC is incredibly popular within Apple. They actually enjoy doing it. Um, And they write a lot of code with core foundation. (laughs) You know, every objective C framework that you use probably is built on top of a core foundation framework. And so it behooves them more than anyone to get this working. Um, and so I suspect it'll come soon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually it could come as part of just an Xcode release, right? It doesn't have to have anything to do with the OS. Um, yes, that is true. So, Although they tend to
1: end up throwing stuff in. There's that light framework, which they That's do yeah. sort of pigeonhole stuff in.
0: But anyway, uh-huh. I, I would say I would... I would say 10 nine feels like that this, this
1: year, WWDC feels like a good time for
0: them to tell us they had done it. Yeah, absolutely. So were there any other uh, new sort of parts of the modern development process that you really liked or really didn't like? Um, I can think of one. What? I mean, it, it seems like for all of the promise, auto layout um, ended up being an awful lot of hassle.
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, we come at, we come from this in a slightly different way than most people because we actually have been using our internal version of Auto Layout for a couple years now, um, at least on ScopeBox. So there, you know the model before this was springs and struts where you did these little dumb things in Interface Builder, and that was supposed to give it enough information to resize everything for you, and it it just it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. Um, it works fine as long as you're not making an app with an interface. As soon as you, as soon as you want anything to resize, it just, it goes to hell. Um, things like you can't have something with a spring and strut layout, you can't have a size which goes to zero and then it, it can't maintain coherency through a size of zero. So if you have any sidebar which collapses, all bets are off. If you have, you know, any of those things where you've got the panels that move in and out and the things that change size and the stuff that can get animated off to the edge, then you're screwed. Um, And so, you know, a few years ago, we grabbed an existing layout manager that someone had written and stole a bunch of ideas from it and rewrote it. Um, And so all of the, like, you know, because... ScopeBox is basically nothing but side panels, <laughs> and all of those didn't work. Like when we when we started the design for ScopeBox Two, it it became apparent that this was going to hurt a lot, and so, um, yeah. So all of that is run with our little auto layout manager, um, which works pretty well. I mean we've we've gotten rid of all the major bugs. And the big problem with it is that you have to basically write all of that interface stuff. All of those, um, all of the rules for how things are going to auto resize have to be written in code. Um, And the big advantage to auto layout, as it was sold, is that you can do all of this in Interface Builder or in code. And what's what's really sort of happened is that um, the interface builder side is still a little too magic and still a little too flaky. Um, so if you're just writing all of your auto layout stuff in code, it works great. It works, you know, it's like our layout manager, but written by Apple. We don't have to worry about it. And... Um, You know, it's been tested by a lot more people than ours has. Um, And that's, you know, phenomenal. That works great. The problem is that interface builder, um, in order for their layout manager to work, you need to really, really define the constraints between objects And there is, there seems to be for any layout, there seems to be a magic number of constraints, which properly defines everything. And one less than that means it cannot lay out the page at all. And one more than that means the page can no longer resize. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's not always obvious what that number is going to be. And so it, Interface Builder does is it just adds a 1,000. Every time you move an object, it's just like, oh, I added all these constraints for you. And they tend not to be the ones you need. And you can delete them, but next time you open Interface Builder, it's going to add them back for you.
0: Right. Th- th- this will be familiar to anyone who's ever worked on anything in IB, is that you, you can end up in states where you spend a lot of time fighting IB.
1: Yeah. I mean, the problem is, yeah, this has always been my com. Plaint with designing interfaces in the Apple tool set is they have you write all your code in a code editor, and if you want to figure out what's wrong, you look through your code. If in, when you create your interface, you design it in IB, and most every you know, like a good application, most everything is hidden behind context. But the problem is, when something doesn't work, there's no way to, there's not a context that you can go into, which is, I need to see every single thing that defines this interface. And that way I can figure out what's wrong. There's no like high level view you can get to. It's just like click on every single thing and then go through the five tabs of settings until you find where it's not working. You know, and that's been true of bindings forever. That's been true of actions that's been true, you know, now it's true for all of this. And, you know, I don't know there's a
0: great solution to
1: that other than,
0: like, right. I mean, in your
1: interface and code, which is,
0: you know. Right, you're dealing with a works. two-dimensional view into a multi-layer interface with objects that may represent collections of other objects. There's sort of, there, there's just a lot of stuff that they need to show to you and figuring out a way to actually show you what you actually what you want, um, it's a tricky problem to solve. And, and I definitely don't think they've solved it at this point. No.
1: And you know, there's always you know, and there's this problem that, ex, you know, programmers tend to be textually oriented. You know, and all of our tools are textually oriented. Like whenever you are done writing something, you commit it, and we go through all of the text that's changed in our version control system, and we approve the changes. But none of that works for things that you changed in Interface Builder. Um, and then you add on the fact that Interface Builder tends to like to change things just because... Right And like so you, you know
0: you open an, a view and you sort of click on something but don't change anything that might actually be a that may churn file. changes in the in the file, yeah,
1: and so there's no great way to know when something's changed by looking at the you know the version control system, and there's no great way to know what changed by looking at the version control system and so I don't know i mean i'm not that's my biggest complaint about the tool set right now. And I don't have a great solution for it. Yeah.
0: Is there a command line tool that will take a nib or a zib and turn it into a, make a screenshot of it, basically? No, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, you could do like a, a pre-commit hook on Git
1: that screenshot uh, I mean, all your... Yeah, I and... wouldn't even want a screenshot. I'd want a diff. Well, Like, show me a visual representation of what changed. Yeah. I don't know how you would even do that. Like... Yeah.
0: If, but at a minimum, I mean, what I'm saying is just at a minimum, then you would, in your GitHub commit history, you could see visually where the change to your interface happened. Or,
1: right. You know, the problem is visual diffs are so hard to do. Yeah. You know, there's no, there's nothing like a visual blame.
0: No. I mean, the f- what kaleidoscope's getting close.
1: Yeah, it's getting close. But you really, you need some way to, like... I mean, what would be awesome is if you could diff the two zibs... And generate screenshots of both of them, and then instrument them—you know—with some sort of overlay right. that showed you what attributes changed. So if, like, uh, constraint changed, like, draw the constraint yeah. in red that changed between the two. But you don't know. That'd be—it's doable. They should do that for us.
0: They should, but they probably won't.
1: They might. I mean, the nice thing is, you know, this—we're not writing in real basic or. Gnome.js, like every single application that Apple writes, you know, there's, you know, there's a giant, you know, those X code people are surrounded by Apple developers who have all of these same, you know, issues. So you would hope that, you know,
0: and again, this is a case where, with Auto Layout, for example, like the place where Auto Layout is is the most awesome is on the iOS devices because Auto Layout is, in theory, a really great way to deal with rotation. Uh, well, it's, that, I, I mean, the killer. I mean, I, a lot more than
1: just layout tends to change between rotation. The real killer feature for Auto Layout is um, localization.
0: Yeah, I mean, I see. I see Auto Layout as it deals with the fact that localization was really awful, but I think that that could have been solved in a variety of different ways. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I I don't know. Um, but yes, it does help there, but it's still nowhere near as good as it should be. I think. I agree. Um, anyways, but I don't think that it's not a f- framework level problem. No, Xcode. it's no. a tool set level. Absolutely. Problem. Absolutely. That Xcode could make localization so much better and, as a result, have so many people, more people localizing their apps. Um, but what,
1: what do you think Xcode needs for localization?
0: I mean, you know, even in terms of um, the IDE and the code editor, you know, they should make it really clear, that, you know, highlight strings. Every time you're working with strings, they should be able to pull all the strings out of your code. And, they can do that, and, can't they? Uh, I mean, it's a command line tool, but yeah, you can exactly. do like, that. It should just be happening as you're writing code and... I don't know. I just think they could make the whole thing a lot easier. Um, yeah. you know, so that you could continue, you know, cause the problem is that as a developer, you know, when you want to sort of log something out, you want to write and log at quotation message. Um, and if you have to jump over, if you have to create a reference and then jump over to another file and add the string there and sort of make, keep track of all of that, um, you know, you, it's disincentivizing, um, and the stuff in IB is still not anywhere, you know, it's it's one, it's, all, it's still a pain in the ass to make it happen to get it started the first time. Um and you deal with a lot of weird Xcode sort of issues getting your nibs forked and I don't know. You don't have to do any of yeah. that anymore, do you? Yeah, you still have to do some of that with auto layout. You still you only keep one nib now. Well you keep one nib, but in terms of in the UI, you still see don't you still see chil- fake children nibs and I don't think so
1: mm-hmm. you just use the variable name instead of the text in all of your fields and stuff mm-hmm. and then it automatically picks the
0: ones the only thing you have multiples of are the string files maybe that's it I don't know whatevs yeah so Phosphor available now yeah. app store 999 com slash Phosphor yes um we're really, really eager to see what people do with this app. So please um, shoot us an email, send us a link, send us a tweet. If you play with it, you do something cool. If you launch we a website will, that uses it, yeah, we would will love it. to tell everyone about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we'd love to work with developers who either, you know, want if to do something. The framework, yeah, or if you're just a designer or developer and you wish it did something, let us know because we want to iterate, especially on the framework, we want to iterate rapidly and give people what they want. Yes. Uh, Have you come up with a chatter? I have not. Go for it. I'll come up with something quick. My my chatter this week is a new publishing platform called PRSS. Uh, That's said press. It is the publishing platform behind the very popular iPad travel app, which is called Travel, T-R-V-L. And If you've used travel, it's a really gorgeous sort of publishing platform app, um, with, you know, images and, and maps and videos and text. And it's, it's gorgeous and it's really fast, um, really optimized for downloading to your iPad and, um, just very slick across the board. They've taken the success of travel and have now are in the process of launching a generalized publishing platform. So anyone who wants to produce content can create a custom iOS app and deliver content to it, um, and this is one of a variety of different tool sets that are hitting the market. Now we're sort of three years on from the iPad and, and we're starting to see some really cool stuff that use utilize, um, uh, what's the bookshelf called news, mm-hmm. newsstand, The newsstand. Uh, so things that utilize newsstand and our new publishing platforms rather than just the sort of, you know, Condé Nast, horrible app that crashes all the time that's, you know, designed to use existing publishing workflows. Um, so, you know, you've seen things like Marco Arben's The Magazine and there are other people getting into that space and, um, opening up, um, platforms for other people who just want to say something to, um, use their platform. So I think it's really exciting. Um, you know, uh, the magazine is a super impressive application just in terms of the way it uses uh newsstand and the reading experience and travel really takes it to the next step by bringing in rich media and interactivity and, um, you know, some interesting UI takes. And, and the idea that now anyone will be able to publish stuff as beautiful is pretty awesome.
1: Yeah. Very cool.
0: I haven't played with it.
1: I'll have to take a look at the, uh, yeah. Um, Okay, so I came up with something. I've been sort of digging through the graphics category on the App Store because that's where we're going to be sticking phosphor, so kind of seeing what sort of apps are in there. And one of the ones that came out recently, looks like it was uh, January 8th, um, that caught my eye, that looked kind of interesting, it's called Torretino, T-O-R-E-T-I-N-O. Um, I have not used this app. I've only looked at it in the store. Um, But it looks very interesting. It takes the... It's for developers. It takes the... um, Your standard image and your 2x image for retina support and builds the multi-resolution TIFFs out of them. Hmm. So... You just drop your two PSD files in there and bingo, bango, it will um, create the multi-resolution TIFFs that you need. And it looks to be uh, a very nicely designed little app. It sort of sticks everything into uh, an outbox and you can just drag and drop the assets out of the application into. So you can like dump in a bunch of stuff, batch it all and then just sort of use it as a um, library when you're building stuff. Pull them out one at a time and stick them where you need to. Um,
0: and you don't need to change your app. Like, what do you mean? I mean, I mean um, you know, if, if you've previously been using at2x normal and at2x pings, um, you don't like in Interface Builder, you don't need to change your app at all if you swap out your pings for these TIFFs.
1: Correct. Yeah, because you never mention the app 2x anywhere in Xcode anyways.
0: Right, and you never mention the file extension. Right. So, so yeah,
1: you just dump them in and go.
0: And so you get a cleaner uh, Xcode project.
1: and Cleaner resource folder.
0: You don't. Yeah, you don't risk uh, renaming a file and having it break your app 2x, and then you don't notice it till after you've shipped, and then you have to go in the App Store queue because Retina MacBook users are angry and... Did that happen to us? You sound very... No, no. Okay. I was going to say,
1: you made that sound like it's bit you before.
0: I'm just, I'm uh, sympathizing with all the people that I'm sure it has bit.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It seemed like a nice little $2 app. I was, uh, it's on my list of things to grab when we need it.
0: Cool. All right. Well, we will be back soon with a uh, non-special episode of Divergent Opinions but for now please check out Phosphor let us know what you think um, you know pro or con positive or negative we like hearing from you
1: and shout about it on every and if you, happen, you have we for. should,
0: we should shout out as well um, if you happen to be in San Francisco at Macworld and if we have released this podcast before Macworld San Francisco is over which hopefully we have because otherwise it means other things have gone wrong uh, drop us a line. We're in the city, both of us. Mike's always there, but I'm there. And so that's what matters. And um, we can hang out. We'll be at the San Francisco, uh, the creative professional users group, Supermeet. Yes. And we'll be hanging out at our office. We'll be
1: around Macworld some. Yeah. yeah. We would love to hear from you. Cool. Talk to you soon.